Good morning. Let's uh, begin our time of prayer, please. Almighty Father, we will be peering into some wonderful mysteries this morning, and we hope that you will guide our reflections so we may humbly understand the things revealed to us, not to uh, seek after those things that you have not revealed and have chosen not to uh, unveil to us, because the mysteries are of your mind are far deeper than we can plumb. But what you've revealed is ours, O Lord, and we would know it because we would know you better. We would glorify you in your revelation. Please give us uh, insight into your scripture this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. A verse in the Bible which is easy to uh, miss unless you read the book of Hebrews is Psalm 110.4. The Lord has sworn and not changed his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is a passage which, as we'll see in a moment, opens up that element in covenant theology, which is really the anchor of the whole project, in my opinion, and that is that covenant theology begins with God. In fact, it begins and ends with God. God originated it in eternity, and the goal of all of covenant theology is that wonderful formula that I will be your God and you will be my people and that we will have God forever and be in intimate covenant communion with him forever. That is the goal of all of his uh, working in covenant with us. But it begins with God himself and this is what we call the covenant of redemption. In covenant theology, this has been a pretty uh, clearly held view that has uh, been the unanimous opinion of our theologians throughout the centuries that there is a covenant, something you can call a covenant within the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanting to redeem a people and to bring us into the covenant of of grace after, of course, the covenant of works was broken. Now, I mentioned those two uh, covenants and I'm going to sketch those before we get into the covenant of redemption and really talk about it in more detail the uh, really the two main things to keep in mind in the history uh, of biblical revelation that there are two ma- major covenants and in our, our theologians often just speak of the first covenant and the second covenant and what those are is the covenant of works with Adam this is in our confessional documents both the confession and catechisms talk about the covenant of works with Adam We'll talk about that uh, this evening and perhaps a little bit more as we go. But the covenant of works is that covenant instituted at creation with Adam. And it demanded of Adam, and this is the real heart of it, personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. Those three terms come out of the larger catechism. Personal, personal, excuse me, personal, perpetual, and perfect obedience. And that, that is the real essential character of the covenant of works. It was personal obedience. Adam had to act on his own to acquire the blessing of that covenant. And of course, when he broke it, the curse of that covenant fell upon him. In the day you eat of the fruit of this tree, you will die. And that curse was instituted and death entered in and that day uh, when that covenant was broken. But in Genesis 3.15, you have the beginning promise of the gospel that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And that is the uh, beginning of the covenant of grace. And you see grace operating from then on. And the real difference between the covenant of grace and the covenant of works lies in the fact that the covenant of grace, its uh, operation and fulfillment is dependent on another, not on us personally. So it is not our personal fulfillment of the terms of the covenant as under the covenant of works in the covenant of grace. In the covenant of grace, the terms of the covenant are fulfilled personally, perfectly, and perpetually by another on our behalf, and that is, of course, Christ. And and we could even call the covenant of grace a covenant of substitution. In fact, that's a term that I, I, I think it's helpful to understand that that's the real essence of it. And that is what makes grace grace, you see, is that there is a substitution of another on our behalf so that his benefits and his covenant obedience, 
his meeting the terms of the perpetual, perfect, and personal obedience is given to us so that Christ became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, this great substitution is the heart of the gospel. And that gospel was operating throughout the history of the world from from the uh, Genesis 3.15 announcement to Adam and Eve all the way until the second coming. And of course, it will still be the foundation of our fellowship with God forever. The Lord Jesus Christ in his, uh, in his humanity, which is permanent, as our confession also says rightly, that he remains both God and man forever, the Lord Jesus Christ will always bear the signs of his crucifixion. So those are the two main uh, covenants we're going to be talking about. Now, the covenant of the grace, as you know, is, is uh, also distinguishable in various administrations. And that's a term, again, from our confessions. And it's an it's a excellent term, again, a way to understand the, the distinctions within the covenant of the grace. So you have the Abrahamic institution of uh, administration of the covenant of grace, the Mosaic uh, you have an element in the Davidic, although that's a little different, but then, of course, the New Covenant administration. So we'll be talking about all those when we get to the Covenant of Grace. But behind all of these historical covenants is a divine intra-Trinitarian covenant. And I, I use the term intra on purpose. It is not what you expect. I used to use the term inter Trinitarian, but I was properly uh, corrected on that. If I say that there is an inter-Trinitarian covenant, that means there are various trinities, and there is a covenant between various trinities. And so, no, the way to understand the covenant of redemption is an intra-Trinitarian. Within the Trinity, there is a covenanting. Now, we're talking about something that is very mysterious and difficult to perceive from Scripture, although I'm going to be looking at some passages with you pretty carefully here to, to perceive this. But it does have a mysterious character that I want to acknowledge here. We're going to be talking about something that God has only really given us a peek into in Scripture. It's a clear enough peek that we can understand that this exists, but we don't know a lot of details about it. You know, the secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29.29. But the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever. So this this is an aspect of the secret uh, character of God's eternal working and of His divine counsel, which exists from all eternity without any change or development. You see, God doesn't develop, and His divine counsel, another way of talking about His decree, is not a developmental thing. He doesn't come to new decisions because that's something that, that happens in time. But rather, this is an aspect of the divine decree, organizing uh, how God deals with us in redemption. And it takes the form of a covenant. Now, the importance of this, I think, is, should be noted. Uh, often, when you read about uh, an analysis of biblical covenants from various people, they treat covenant as if it were a human thing used to interpret the scripture. And I, I think if you understand the covenant of redemption rightly, you see that no, actually, the only re reason that it appears in, in uh, human societies, covenant, is because it's a representation and a mirror of God's own way of dealing within the Trinity. That there's a, a covenant, a sure compact. And this is why that definition I gave you uh, took that character. A solemnly bound arrangement or disposition which fits this uh, phenomenon of uh, a covenant between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that is the foundation of covenant theology, in my opinion. The Father originates the covenant. He has originated and planned this. It was the set counsel and determination of God. That phrase comes right out of uh, Acts 2, doesn't it? Uh, in John, in various places, and I believe I gave you some of these references in your, in your folders, 
in, in John, you have throughout the incarnate Lord Jesus says periodically, I came not to do my own will, but the will of my Father in heaven. I have not come to do my own will. I'm fulfilling his will. I have to make some distinctions there. This is the incarnate Son speaking as the God-man. And yet you can distinguish there the will of the Father, the will of the Godhead really, from the incarnate Son. But the thing to see is that he is fulfilling a mission that has already been planned. When Jesus says, I came down from heaven to do the will of the one who sent me, He's fulfilling a plan. It was resolved that he would do something. It was settled what he would do. In the high priestly prayer, Jesus says, I fulfilled the work that you gave me to do. I have come and I have completed it. But you see, it was planned. It wasn't something that ad hoc that he just, uh, he just sort of worked it out as he went. No, this is a divine plan and a set counsel. And that makes it covenantal once it's solemnly bound. The son on his part would uh, take upon himself the role of the guarantor of the covenant. That term comes out of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22. He's the guarantor of the covenant, also the mediator of the covenant, the one who would be the substitute for his people in the covenant of grace. He is the covenant head. He is the one in his incarnation who would assume uh, that active role, but not apart from the other two members of the Trinity, but that active role by becoming man. It is the Son who became incarnate, not the Father and not the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, the Father and and the Holy Spirit were involved in fulfilling this plan, we'll see in a moment. And the Holy Spirit was intimately engaged in this covenant making as well. He would do two primary things. He would equip the Son in his incarnate ministry to fulfill that role. We, we read that uh, Jesus was born, the Son of God was born through the Holy Spirit. Remember, the, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and uh, she conceived. So the Holy Spirit was involved in Jesus' birth. His messianic ministry was filled with the Holy Spirit's active involvement. He was baptized with the Spirit. The the Spirit came down as a dove. Christ was anointed with the Spirit in power. In John 3.34, we read that, that Jesus had the Spirit without measure. And this was so that he would fulfill that role. He would, he would be equipped with all that he needed to fulfill uh, the role that the Father had assigned him and that he had in his uh, uh, heavenly existence as Son of God had compacted with the Father and the Holy Spirit to fulfill on behalf of his people. Now, I'd like you to turn now to a verse. I, I'll probably come back to this one because it's a pretty important verse in Hebrews 9 verse 14. This is a passage that um, many of these uh, passages, it's easy to skip over some of the details of them, but once you look at the details and start asking questions, you find that it's a much more profound uh, statement than you first thought. This is Hebrews 9.14. In the context uh, going back to verse 11, this is really where the passage, uh, the nearer context takes us. Christ had, had become such a great high priest of the better and more perfect tabernacle not made by hands. We'll talk about that later on. This is very important for the topic we're discussing. The covenant of redemption deals with this heavenly tabernacle, uh, not an earthly one. That is, it's not of this creation. And he didn't offer the blood of uh, goats and bulls. This is the the blood of of the Day of Atonement in particular offering. But he offered an eternal redemption. Now going to verse 14, compared with the cleansing of the flesh in the Mosaic Covenant in the Levitical priesthood, verse 14, how much rather the blood of Christ So there's the Son of God who through the eternal Spirit, there's the Holy Spirit, 
offered himself blameless to God. There's God the Father. Cleanse your conscience, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. There's God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you see here the Trinitarian involvement. But notice the role of the Holy Spirit here. And this is something that, I, that, that is most remarkable. How is it that Christ, the Son of God, could die on a cross on earth, but the benefit of that death and his blood have effect in a tabernacle not made by hands, not of this creation, not on earth? It's through the Holy Spirit. It is a, a redemption which is brought to effect through the Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is involved intimately in all phases of the messianic work of Christ. His birth, his work on earth, and his redemptive sacrifice. And going further, of course, you all know, in the resurrection. He was resurrected through the spirit of holiness in uh, Romans 1.4. So you see the Holy Spirit is intimately involved in this great operation of redemption. And this redemption is connected to covenant. Look at the next verse, verse 15 in the same passage. And it is for this reason that he is mediator of a new covenant. It's because he has offered the very heart of covenant is priestly sacrifice and he has done this of a different order. And that makes the covenant of a different order as well. A heavenly covenant a covenant anchored in God's own presence, a covenant of eternal significance, so that we have an eternal redemption, he says, going on. Notice, by the way, back in verse 14, it's through the eternal spirit. That's not normally the adjective used for the Holy Spirit. But through the eternal spirit, he offered this eternally valid redemption. So it's the Holy Spirit that makes our redemption of eternal value. And the second real aspect, of course, of the Holy Spirit's work is applying this uh, objective, once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, this redemptive sacrifice, applying that to us. And, of course, when the Spirit comes upon us and converts us, he is merely giving to us the benefits of Christ's objective work. So the Spirit also, in the intertrinitarian pact, has uh, taken upon himself that role to uh, bring us into the fellowship and the benefits of the covenant so that we come alive with the great benefit, of course, is resurrection, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me just sketch out for you uh, very briefly, and I have this in your handout, just the, the brief words the characteristics of this covenant of redemption. The first one is all three members of the Trinity are involved. Now, I, I, I stress the Holy Spirit's involvement because in, our, uh, in other presentations of the covenant of redemption, you do get a sense that it's simply an agreement between the Father and the Son. They don't really develop the Holy Spirit's involvement. But I think, I think the biblical material very clearly shows that the Holy Spirit is intimately involved of course, you can't divide up persons of the Trinity absolutely to where the Holy Spirit would be absent from this uh, divine counsel. He is equally fully God. So you have, uh, you have an uh, intra-Trinitarian covenant which is fully Trinitarian. That's the first point. But, but note this in particular that this is not an ontological distinction within the Godhead. And by that I mean, this doesn't mean that the Son is a whole different sort of being from the Father because he takes on this role in redemption. We're talking now about the economical trinity. And that's a term in theological uh, language that we mean to, uh, we can distinguish the Father from the Son in their roles in redemption. And that's all that means. And this is what we're talking about with an intra-Trinitarian covenant. That they have, that God has taken counsel and uh, the, the distinct roles and functions in redemption have been compacted 
had been agreed upon and settled in the divine council. This is what I mean by covenant in this place. So this doesn't uh, break up God into three different gods. This is simply talking about God's role, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit's role in redemption. But there is, behind this, the one single will of God. There are not three wills within God. The will of God the Father, the will of God the Son, the will of the Holy Spirit. There's only one will of God because there's only one God. But this is, uh, you know, we're getting into some mysteries here. Once you start talking about the Trinity, you have to make talk in this fashion to make sure you don't overstress the unity, to ignore the, the distinctions of the persons, and vice versa, so stress the distinctions of the person, persons of the Godhead that God has split into three. And in this brief time, I'm simply saying, I think we have to preserve classic Trinitarian theology and, t- and holding to a covenant of redemption does not, um, does not sacrifice our Trinitarian theology. Just the opposite. Just the opposite. I think it flows out of our Trinitarian theology to hold to a covenant of redemption. But it is a mysterious element in scripture. God is, reveals a little bit about the covenant of redemption, but not much. And so I believe if you keep going further in, in reflecting on covenant redemption, you must do it very carefully, aware that you're going to reach limits very quickly, I believe. Where there's not a lot of scriptural data to work with. God gives us enough of a, a peek into his divine counsel to see that there is something we can call a covenant within the three persons of the Trinity, and yet not much more. Now, I, I think of the covenant of redemption as complex, and we're going to get into this more when we talk about the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is distinguished from the covenant of works only in relation to us, but not in relation to Christ. For Christ, the covenant of grace was a covenant of works because he had to personally fulfill the terms of the law. And by doing it, his obedience, his act of obedience, is granted to us by way of gift, because he's our covenant head. And this is all part of the arrangement settled in the covenant of redemption. Now when we get later on, we'll, we'll talk about that further. But it is a complex phenomenon. The covenant of redemption is not simply one kind of covenant. This is why I've I've defined covenant so broadly, really. You have to understand it as a solemnly bound disposition or settlement. It can take other more specific forms, but once you define covenant more narrowly as being all that covenant can ever be, and then I say covenant redemption, you get into trouble. This This is the problem with Murray's definition, for example that it's a uh, solemnly granted uh, grant of grace, essentially. It's a uh, sovereign, somebody help me here, a sovereign administration of grace. See, he, he defines covenant of any sort as that, and I think that, that creates problems if you talk about the covenant of redemption, because it's not a sovereign administration of grace. And I do believe that... Uh, that my definition fits all the phenomenon in the scripture better than that more narrow definition. It's also, it it, it flows out of uh, speaking of covenant more broadly. Fifth, the covenant of redemption patterns all of historical reality. In a sense, at creation, God was instituting patterns which are shaped by this covenant in the Godhead. Specifically, Adam was set up as a covenant head representing his whole race. Our confession calls Adam a public person. This is a way of expressing that what he does is what we do. What he has done, he's done on our behalf. In his sin, we all sin as this passage in Romans 5 we look at teaches so clearly. He is a covenant representative, a federal head. 
And you see, God set him up originally as federal head, covenant head. And that was shaped by all of this covenanting that God would do as history played out. And specifically, Adam was set up as a type of the one to come, the last Adam, Christ Jesus. We'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to the Adamic covenant. But you see, behind all of this is God's eternal plan and decree. So all of this is uh, set up with those things in mind at creation. Creation itself is covenantal, but it is created in, co- in a covenantal way so that you would see later on uh, flowing out of this really Christ and what he would do in the covenant of grace. And this is, this is going back to a point I made earlier. This is what I mean when I say that I don't believe that you can look at the culture, the ancient Near Eastern culture, for example, and find covenants and say, well, this is where the Hebrews got this notion. I don't think they got the notion from the ancient Near Eastern peoples. They got the notion because God put it into Revelation from the beginning. And then ancient Near Eastern peoples got the idea because they were uh, in closer contact with the original creation. You find creation myths, you know, in the, among the ancient Near Eastern peoples because they knew the biblical truths and yet they, over the centuries, had perverted them and passed them on in these uh, perverted ways and yet there's still these c- central elements in their creation myths. You have a person, there's a snake, there's eating something. All these things appear in the Babylonian and Assyrian myths of creation. Why? Because they were remembering the truth and the true account, which we have in Scripture. And, and so I believe that covenant in the ancient Near Eastern societies is the same thing. Covenant originates with God. It's not something originating by the ancient Near Eastern peoples. Well, fifth, the historical records, historical covenants recorded in Scripture, I believe, testify to the covenant of redemption. Sometimes I use this term pactum salutis. It's just a Latin word for covenant of redemption. It's a term found in our, in our older theologians very frequently. It's a Latin word meaning the, the covenant of salvation, salutis, is genitive of salvation. But it's, it's just another way of talking about the covenant of redemption. But no one historical covenant, for example, the Abrahamic covenant, it doesn't embody all the features of the covenant of redemption. It, it, it embodies a part of it, some aspect of it. And this is very important to note. Because sometimes people take one covenant in Scripture and make that the model by which you understand all other covenants. And I believe you have to take all of the covenants and put them together into the big picture. And what you see is representations of the divine model, the intertrinitarian compact. These are simply manifestations of the original. And I'm going to make that case as we go. Try to show you why this is uh, a better way to look at it. So you understand the difference there. And I say this because even some of our good covenant theologians have, I believe, made that mistake, taken one covenant and made that the cookie cutter by which we understand all the others. And I don't believe that's the proper way to look at it. Well, I'm throwing out a lot of, opening a lot of cans of worms, possibly. (laughs) I'll be around this week, you know. And I'm also open to correction, brothers and sisters. I am not the last word on this stuff. I'm I'm still learning some of this myself. Some of the details I'm still working through. But I I believe this approach is very fruitful. Uh, And I thought about it a little bit. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hopefully opening up time for dialogue and learning together on, on this. Well, let's, uh, let's look at the three types of evidence for the covenant of redemption in Scripture. The, the three types are, one, scriptural evidence, just the hints. We always want to start with Scripture, of course. We believe in the theological covenants. We also believe in the biblical covenants, don't we? So we're going to look at Scripture. We'll look at one passage in particular, which is uh, extraordinarily fruitful for us. Secondly, I'm going to look at, make a, an argument 
from structure, and this is really the structure of typology, working with the, uh, for example, the heavenly tabernacle and showing you how that works, and see that this really is uh, relating to us this structure of the covenant of redemption behind all of Revelation. And then third, and we won't really make a specific case for this, I'm just going to suggest that when you understand if that structural argument holds, then all the biblical covenanting in the scripture um, that God enters into are uh, opening up the heavenly reality. When you see, for example, the tabernacle on earth, it's modeled after the heavenly tabernacle. So you look at the earthly tabernacle to understand the heavenly. And that's the same thing with covenant. You understand the, the heavenly transaction between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The very bedrock of our redemption is there within the divine council. And then you understand that what God did on earth was working to reveal that and to bring that into historical fulfillment in the sending of his Son in the new covenant. And that's what we're going to say really about the, uh, the evidence from once you see those things. Then you look at all the, the biblical covenants and you understand the covenant of redemption and a mirror, as it were. So that's the three thing, ways we're going to look at this. If you have questions before we get into the scripture, it might illuminate some of it when we look at passages, but be glad to take questions as we go. Please? when it's being discussed. Well, I, I did elaborate a little bit in the, the Spirit's role in uh, Christ fulfilling the Messianic task, which is the covenant task that he had been assigned and agreed to. So the Spirit was... Uh, enabling Christ to fulfill his messianic role in all phases. You always find the scripture linking uh, Christ's, every phase of Christ's earthly ministry and even his resurrection and exaltation to the Holy Spirit. But also, I believe that it's the Holy Spirit's role in the covenant redemption is uh, bringing us into the benefits of the covenant redemption. He's the one who uh, is... Uh, God's presence with us to regenerate us and give us that vital union with Christ, our covenant mediator. And I think that, that uh, Hebrews 9.14, when you look at that and keep thinking about it, you'll see that he offered this redemptive sacrifice through the Holy Spirit, through the eternal Spirit. Now, I don't believe that simply that the Holy Spirit enabled him to, to endure the cross. I don't think the author is thinking of that. He's thinking of how the Lord Jesus Christ offered a sacrifice in Golgotha that had effect in a heavenly tabernacle not made by hands, verse 11 and 12. How? Well, it was through the eternal spirit, which in verse 15 qualified him to become mediator of a new covenant. Notice how priesthood and covenant and sacrifice are all right there together closely linked and it's because of that we've been brought into contact with an, an eternal redemption those who are called receive the promise of an eternal inheritance and it's eternal inheritance because the spirit is the eternal spirit the one who brings us into contact with eternity and the great benefit of Christ which has eternal consequences this perfection and drawing near to God and cleansing us. So that's how I would see the Holy Spirit's role in the covenant of redemption. This, this is his assignment, as it were, what he agrees to in the covenant of redemption. He will, this is his task. It's really another way to talk about the economical trinity. But you're talking about the economical trinity, which just means how the three members of the trinity operate in redemption. That's what I mean by economical trinity that behind this is a divine counsel, a decree, a fixed counsel of God, which has the form of covenant, a solemnly bound disposition. It's fixed. 
this goes back again to that passage. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have time to look at all these passages. I'll, I'll just allude to them, and I, I think some of them are there. In Acts 2, Christ was foreordained and foreknown by the fixed counsel of God. It was, it was settled in eternity. Jesus Christ was foreknown from eternity, 1 Peter 1. He was the one who has ever been known as the one who would come to complete this redemptive task. So you see, this makes it part of the divine decree. So covenant or redemption is just another way to talk about the divine decree as it relates to redemption. But it takes the form of covenant in that there are three parties involved, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now when we get to the Genesis, uh, excuse me, the Galatians 3, I'm going to uh, make that case even stronger. Yes, it's an eternal decree. And, and by the way, the decrees of God, we talk about it in plural, but there's really only one decree, the divine counsel. And it, when we think about the divine decrees, we're simply separating out elements of the one divine counsel and, and distinguishing them, but they really have to be seen as one unified whole counsel of God. His plan doesn't change, doesn't move. He doesn't come to new decisions. He has all plans all at once, forever, always has been. <laughs> We're talking about God here, and once you do that, you know, you have to sort of expand your mind. Uh, I do anyway. <laughs> but that is how we describe the divine decree. And the covenant redemption is a way to talk about the divine decree as it relates to us, but also as it relates to the three persons of the Trinity. They have entered into solemn compact to accomplish this. Now let me give you the payoff. I was going to save this for later. The payoff of this is, again, this isn't an ad hoc plan that God came up with. Redemption. It was fixed from forever. And we were in mind. And he was determined to do this. He has determined with his own strength and his own plan to bring this about. And it was foreknown from before the foundation of the world because Christ Jesus was foreknown from before the foundation of the world. That means the incarnate Son who would die on the cross. And this is, this is all part of that compact. But you see, by calling it a covenant, it's something fixed and determined. It's bound. And this is, this is the real benefit of this Psalm 110. I want you to look at that again. I'm going to answer the other questions, but let me just point out this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110.4 Now the form of that verb, the Lord has sworn, is past tense. I've quizzed my Hebrew colleagues on this at length. I pestered them. You know, Can this mean anything else? Well, this or that, and I went back to my Hebrew grammars and I came back to them and they said, but they say that when it has this deception... It has this form, and they say, oh, yeah, you're right. So here's, here's what it says. When, when David announces this, the Lord has sworn, it's something that's already an oath in force. An oath exists when David writes this already that the son would fulfill the priesthood of Melchizedek in that order. Now, in, in Hebrews... That's his high priestly ministry in the heavenly tabernacle. But you see, it, it, when David writes this, well over a thousand years before Christ, that oath was already in force. And when you have an oath, you have a covenant. Psalm 89 says, let me give this to you. You have, you have said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. 
This is Hebrew parallelism. This is Psalm 89.3. You have sworn, I have cut a covenant with my chosen one. This is the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7. I have sworn to David my servant. Notice in the parallelism, to swear is to cut a covenant. So God has made an oath with the Son, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You will fulfill that priesthood. And I swear it. There's an oath here. And that makes it a, a settled, fixed, solemnly bound arrangement. Now who's swearing to whom? The Father is swearing to the Son. That is the covenant of redemption, in my opinion. This is, again, we're, we're getting a peek into the divine counsel here, that there is this settled disposition to do this, and that's what makes it a covenant. Again, when I, yesterday when I mentioned, you have covenant even with the language not there, but when you have oath, it's, it's about all you need to say covenant. An oath and a covenant really go together because you're settling something and fixing it with a, uh, the most solemn kind of bond you can make. And God himself is swearing. And we'll look at another passage where I believe you can find this. But this is one place where I think you can understand the divine counsel. Yes, oath and covenant. No. Psalm 89.3 is simply to show you that where you have oath, you can assume covenant. Because the parallelism here is he swore to David and that constituted cutting an oath. Cutting a covenant, excuse me. Making that oath was cutting a covenant. And again, in Second Samuel, you don't have the word covenant or oath there. And yet it's interpreted in Psalm 89 as both covenant and oath. But no, I'm simply pointing out that when you have an oath, you have a covenant. And this is a, an example of that with the Davidic. Somebody else had a question. Alan? Adam? Yes. The question is, the historical covenants we have in the recorded in Scripture are pointing to the intertrinitarian covenant. And they give us insight into the intertrinitarian because no, altogether, because no one of them can comprehend all that the intertrinitarian covenant embodies. I, I think that's what I'm saying. In specific, the covenant of works with Adam has a different character for us from the covenant of grace. And you can't take that as the paradigm for the covenant of grace. It really is operating to understand how Christ can be the second Adam. He's fulfilling the inter-Trinitarian compact. He's doing the works his father assigned to him from eternity. And that work is expressed as a covenant of works for him. Not for us, of course, in the covenant of grace, but for him. But that's the foundation, you see, for the covenant of grace having any validity. There had to be satisfaction for sins and there had to be active obedience fulfilled. To be in covenant with God means being perfect in every way, fully completing all the demands of the law, either personally or... And that, of course, is the active obedience of Christ. You see right now, brothers and sisters, don't you, why covenant theology is really just another way to talk about reform theology. Once we start talking about imputation of righteousness and all, this is just reform theology. And it really is. I mean, we're just using different terminology, but it's a way of arranging, as that uh, nice quote from uh, Warfield says, the, Warfield, in the quote on the Westminster Standards, he says, the Westminster Standards are thoroughly a covenant document because that's the most commodious way of presenting Reformed truth. 
and he's right. It's just a way to express Reformed truth. But you can see how, how you have to be a Calvinist to hold this stuff. You've got to believe in the divine counsel and that God himself originates all this from eternity. So I, I just don't believe you can... No non-Calvinist hold to this stuff. So you have to assume a lot. Alan? It was pointed out that there's a decline of Calvinism when there's a loss of covenant theology and more dispensational emphasis. Yeah, uh, it doesn't it doesn't surprise me. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, de- it depends. The, uh, some of the promises in the Old Covenant are typological. They're, mo- they're showing us what God has in store in the future for God's people. So the promise and the rest in the land, of course, was typological. It was a type of heaven. It was a garden that God planted and put his people there, and he would dwell in their midst. They would dwell in peace and have a covenant of peace and be protected all around. Well, all that's picked up in the book of Revelation directly, and shown to have application in eternity. And so many of the Old Testament promises are really uh, pointing those people ahead to what you have now in greater promises. That's why Hebrews talks about the new covenant is founded on greater promises. He doesn't mean they're different, of a whole different order. He means uh, we have been moved because of the uh, coming of Christ. We've been moved along in God's program to where we see now that it's a city not made by hands that God has prepared for us, an eternal benefit, a kingdom that can't be shaken. Uh, and, and so this is what God has counseled all along, to have us for himself, not just for 60 years in Palestine, and then we die. But no, he, he is determined to have us forever and dwell in our midst forever. So... I, in a sense, you're talking about the development of the administration of the covenants. And I do think that covenant theology properly can understand the distinctions in covenant administration while still maintaining the unity of God's redemptive program. In a, in a sense, sometimes we sound like dispensationalists. You know, our, our uh, older theologians, it might even be in the confession, I forget, ta- uses the word dispensation. I think it does. And it's just another way to say a different administration of the covenant. And there are distinctions, but they're not so distinct that they ruin the unity, as dispensationalism does. It, it basically, this is not a whole system. That's the problem with dispensationalism. If they, if they were really worked at unifying, they'd be one of us, we think. I, don't, I hope that doesn't sound arrogant, but we, uh, I don't mean it so... Uh, but I, what's interesting, I don't know if you know, but current dispensationalists at Dallas Seminary and Talbot in particular are really moving in a more covenantal direction. And they are determined not to become covenant theologians. <laughs> and when you talk with them, it's just not in their worldview. They really hope they don't become. They are, they're going to live and die dispensationalists. But, but now they're so defining dispensationalism that we're, we're saying you can use the word dispensational, but you're not really 
you know, the substance is uh, really different now. Why don't you just join us? Uh, <laughs> and we'll all live together in harmony. And that'd be nice. Uh, maybe. Maybe someday that will happen. I don't know. But the so-called progressive dispensationalism is a quite an interesting movement. Yeah. Some of the uh, some of the real issue for them is how did Christ inaugurate the kingdom in his earthly ministry? And once they start reflecting on the fact that the Scripture says, "All authority in an earth, heaven and earth, has been given to me. I have it. It's not future. I, you know, I have it on heaven and on earth." You know, it just sort of it it uh, really breaks that that rigid. Uh, distinction they make in the New Covenant era from the Old and all. Well, <laughs> in four minutes we're going to analyze in great detail one of the most profound chapters in Scripture. So uh, <laughs> let's think real fast and think real hard. <laughs> Maybe it's a good time for a break or another question. Uh, Let's just take questions and then we'll do the... Uh, what, I, what I intend to do is look at Galatians 3, which the more I look at that chapter, the more I think it's so foundational. And I'll spend as much time on it as we need to. Uh, it's in de- when you look at this passage in detail, you find that it, it really sketches out the whole covenant theology program in one easy place. So that's why I'm going to look at it carefully. And also to show you that you know we're theologizing quite a bit, but our theology is rooted squarely on Scripture and detailed look at Scripture. I, we don't have a time to do it all in our brief week, but it is... Uh, when I allude to previous covenant theologians, you need to understand that there's been an awful lot of work in covenant theology. And much of it's not been translated into English. Some of it has, but I just can't give you anything on the, on the, you know, on the bookshelf of some of our best theologians because they're still in Latin. They just haven't been translated. And, and I can't even get a hold of them except by microfiche, and then I, I go even more blind reading that stuff. <laughs> oh, good. The Latin lessons. Well, it's a worthwhile project. <laughs> yeah. There, there are some things, though, and, and uh, worthwhile things to pursue. Well, I'm going to end there then, and we'll uh, just pick it up after the break. So uh, we'll just break now.